Hey everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You're listening to episode number six. This is your host, Natasha Bajma, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. Before we get started, a quick reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. All right, so I have uh, professional and personal updates this week. Uh, I just got back uh, from traveling to Destin, Florida for work where I had the opportunity to teach special operators about the national security implications at the U.S. Air Force Special Operations School. I was actually hoping for once that my presentation about what's coming in the next 10 years might not render the students into a state of shock, um, given the fact that they are special operators and deal with much worse things on the battlefield. But it turns out they were as concerned about our ability as a government to manage emerging threats as all of my other audiences. So unlike our agile adversaries, government institutions are burdened by hierarchy and bureaucracy, and this is going to inhibit our creativity and innovation for addressing new threats. And this is a big problem and something that we're going to have to overcome if we're going to be successful. Which brings me to my next professional update. I just released an article titled The Future of Defense Innovation, Removing the Silos Between the Warfighters and Innovators. In this article, I explore the challenges of defense innovation under the current defense acquisition system, which is unbelievably unwieldy. And if we continue to try to acquire technology under that system uh, to meet emerging threats, we are going to fail. Um, I also review current transformations underway. So the good news is that Congress is acting and trying to address some of these problems. But the majority of the article examines the model of Softworks, which is uh, an organization, nonprofit organization, um, started up by U.S. Special Operations Command. Um, And they set it up as a way to leverage cutting edge technologies and remove the silos between innovators and warfighters. Um, So I'll definitely include a link in my show notes, um, but a quick note. So I had an opportunity to visit Softworks last March. They have built up an ecosystem of over 8,000 experts, technology experts, startups, makers, hackers, and they all come together with the warfighter um, to basically talk about the problems on the battlefield and how to solve those problems most efficiently and then come up with new solutions. And it's really, really exciting. Um, But one of the things that I discussed while I was there was their organization size and structure. They currently have no plans to grow beyond a group of 25 people, and the primary reason is to keep the structure of the organization both agile and flat to allow for innovation and creativity. Uh, Studies actually show that once an organization exceeds this number, it becomes by nature hierarchical and bureaucratic, which is the opposite of what you um, are going for if you want to stimulate innovation and creativity. Um, So you can read up on that. I'll include the link. My cover for Genomic Data, book three of the Laura Kingsley series is finished. As promised, I'll provide a sneak preview in the show notes. Okay, let's talk tech. 
So before I talk about news headlines for the week, I should note that you can follow my headlines um, and that catch my attention in real time on Twitter. Um, I regularly tweet out headlines um, as I go uh, throughout the week. My handle is at WMDGirl, uh, my old gamer tag. Um, so my first headline for this week is from Wired Magazine on May 3. Biology will be the next great computing platform. So what does this mean? Well, you may or may not know this, but we're in the midst of a technological revolution in the life sciences called synthetic biology, which essentially involves applying engineering principles to biology to make new living organisms, to leverage living organisms to do new things, or create entirely new living organisms. Essentially, scientists are making life from scratch. Mark Goodman, author of best-selling nonfiction book Future Crimes, says that modern biology has become a branch of information technology. So there are a number of enablers in this revolution, um, the first being dramatic reductions in the cost of computing power and data storage. So as a result of this, we are now able to cheaply sequence genomes. You might ask, what does that mean? Sequencing refers to the reading of the DNA code that makes up the genome, or the instructions for a living organism, a DNA sequence is made up of four letters, combinations of four letters, G's, C's, T's, and A's. A genome um, is, is made up of a certain number of base pairs that form two long DNA strands. This is a spiral structure called a double helix. So the cost of sequencing or reading DNA code, um, well, the, first, the cost of sequencing the first human, full human genome um, back in the early 2000s was about $3 billion. So we didn't do it that much for obvious reasons. But now to sequence a full human genome, it costs around $1,000 and there's some new sequencers coming online that may push this to $100 a pop. What that means is that um, in the next five years, if you have an issue and the doctors can't diagnose it using the standard blood tests and whatnot, they may actually uh, map your genome to see if there's any genetic predispositions that they can detect in your DNA code. Um, when a genome is sequenced, the DNA code is read and then converted into ones and zeros, which is digital binary code that can be processed by computers. So everything that's digital consists of ones and zeros. So we're seeing dramatic increases in the synthesis of gene sequences, which is the primary focus of synthetic biology. Gene synthesis is different than sequencing. Sequencing is reading of the code, but gene synthesis translates the genes from the digital code to the DNA sequence to physical DNA material. That means that scientists can build living organisms from a data file stored on a computer, a data file that contains information about a DNA sequence. You may not know this, but there's a growing catalog of genetic information on the internet, including information on gene sequences, gene functions, and full genomes of organisms. I mentioned, I think a couple weeks ago, that the Golden State Killer was found um, based on a free database um, containing genetic information for people. So what this all means is that researchers no longer need a physical source of DNA to manipulate it or study it. They can find a gene sequence online as digital information and have it chemically synthesized by a growing number of companies. And that's what this article that I mentioned is talking about. 
It's discussing the rise of startup companies who are seeking to become the Amazon of genome engineering. Um, it's a fascinating thing, and we're going to see a lot of change in the next five years. So in the past few weeks, I've talked a great deal about drones, and so my next headline, of course, um, is about drones. Uh, the drones are coming like winter in the Game of Thrones. Um, my second headline is from CNN on May 9. Trump administration selects 10 cities to test drones. The Trump administration last year launched the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Integration Pilot Program, largely in response to the fact that the U.S. is falling behind the rest of the world in drones, in particular because it's illegal to fly drones under most circumstances in the United States at this time. So this pilot program basically has selected 10 state and local governments to test advanced drone applications and prepare America for the drone economy. Selected cities are San Diego, California, Reno, Nevada, Bismarck, North Dakota, Memphis, Tennessee, Durant, Oklahoma, Herndon, Virginia, Topeka, Kansas, Raleigh, North Carolina, Fort Myers, Florida, and Fairbanks, Alaska. So what does this mean? It means that in these cities for certain projects that have been approved, these drones will be able to fly over your head, to fly at night, and to fly beyond the view of the drone operator. And so this will allow these companies to test drones to do things like deliver food and medicine, inspect critical infrastructure. But the project that has most caught my attention involves testing out flying taxis. Dun, 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 dun. Here comes the Jetsons, right? Um, so that's all I have for this week. So if you enjoy the show and would like to support the my time and costs of producing the show for only a few dollars a month, please go to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. Last week, we left off with Lara in the safe room. The FBI team had left and now she can safely exit. So she gathers up her things and then sends off a mysterious text. I have something you need to see. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 6, The Bionic Bug Something kept nagging at Lara, something she was supposed to do or remember in the morning, but she didn't have time to figure it out. Right now, she was on a mission. She marched into the genetics lab laboratory of the Department of Etymology at the University of Maryland in College Park, eager to get rid of the wretched beetle. The lab bustled with activity. More than a dozen graduate students with white lab coats scurried about. Some held pipettes in their hands, transferring small volumes of liquid onto glass plates, while others sat at laptop workstations, entering data and running tests. As Lara proceeded, a male lab technician glanced up from his station and gave her an inquisitive look. His eyes darted between her black leather jacket and ripped stonewashed jeans and the plastic container in her hands. She held the container in front of her like a contaminated object. Can I help you with something? The technician said. I'm looking for my friend Maggie. She's expecting me? The technician frowned at her and shook his head. I don't know anybody by that name. Sorry, I meant Margaret Brown. Oh, you mean Dr. Brown, our lab director, he said, leaning toward her with a grin on his face. She's over there in the back corner, tinkering with the new gene sequencing machine. His eyes were bright, and he looked to the corner. We're all waiting to see what she thinks about it. 
Lara nodded and moved carefully through the laboratory, trying not to knock anything over. For a university facility, the lab was much larger and more modern than she expected. Spotless, silver-trimmed white lab benches separated the workspace down the middle of the room. Glass cabinets lined the walls on either side, providing ample storage. The countertops were covered with petri dishes and glass tubes which were filled with brown liquid and what appeared to be small bugs. A rather foul smell, like rotten food mixed with sulfur, permeated the lab and made Lara cringe. The odor was an odd contrast to her pristine surroundings. An itching sensation spread as she imagined the tiny bugs crawling all over her skin. Her imagination started to get the better of her, and she double-checked the container. Still there. In a few minutes, I'll be rid of you, beetle. Maggie was bent over the gene sequencing machine, oblivious to everything around her. Not wanting to startle her, Lara called out when she was several feet away. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Lara, how's it going? Maggie said in her silky Australian accent, waving her hand for Lara to come closer. I just got my new top-of-the-line gene sequencer, and I'm about to give it a whirl. Her smile couldn't be contained, and she nearly jumped as she rocked onto her tiptoes. She clapped her hands together once and spun back to face the machine. Maggie adjusted a few knobs as her long auburn hair swayed from, swayed from her ponytail. Even without a stitch of makeup, Maggie looked stunning in her plain white lab coat. What sort of prezi did you bring me? She asked as she clasped her hands together under her chin and focused on the container, her eyes wide with anticipation. She was the only woman Lara knew who got a thrill from studying insects. For her PhD, she'd used new gene editing tools to render fleas incapable of carrying the plague, thus contributing to a decline in naturally occurring cases around the world. It was groundbreaking research, and her 15 minutes of fame led her to her current position as the entomology lab director at the University of Maryland. Despite her earlier success, Maggie seemed unable to relax and enjoy it. She often spoke about the pressure of filling her parents' shoes and the need to make another breakthrough. Maggie's parents were both preeminent scientists in the field of genetic engineering in Australia and had already won Nobel Prizes for their discoveries related to gene splicing. Unlike Maggie, Lara didn't have any shoes to fill. I guess there's at least one advantage to having no parents. No expectations. Lara handed the container to Maggie and wiped her sweaty hands on her jeans. I'm working on a case for a friend and found this beetle in his home. She hated to lie. But this way, she avoided Maggie's efforts to comfort her over Sully's death. She needed answers. Comfort could wait. I don't know what kind of beetle it is, but it has an electronics package on its back. I was hoping you could take a closer look. Pushing her glasses up on her nose, Maggie opened the container and inspected the beetle. Her light blue eyes widened. What have we here? Oh my, I haven't seen one of these in years. What a beauty! She gently picked the beetle up out of the container with her fingers to get a closer look, its wings trembling at her touch. Instinctively, Lara backed away, placing the palm of her on her gun as if the beetle might jump out at her as punishment for its captivity. Now don't tell me you're bothered by this peaceful little beetle, Maggie chuckled heartedly. Beetles are truly peace-loving creatures. As far as the genus goes, there's only one or two species of beetles that cause problems for humans. Sure, tell that to my tomato plant, Lara smirked. She looked closely at the beetle. In the bright light, its shiny green head caught her attention. It matched the green flecks on its golden body. 
I've never seen anything like this one. Is it even a living beetle? Oh yes, it's alive. Christmas beetles belong to the Scarabidae family, which Lara gave her friend a blank look. Huh? Can you give that to me in layman, please? Sorry, a force of habit. Have you heard of scarab beetles? Maggie asked. Aren't those the beetles ancient Egyptians made into amulets? Maggie nodded. Yeah, the ancient Egyptians worshipped them because they spontaneously emerged from the soil like the creator god. Egyptian hieroglyphs often depict Kipri as a scarab beetle or a man with a scarab beetle head. Ancient Egyptians wore scarabs as charms, which were thought to have magical powers for warding off evil and bringing good fortune. Anyway, the Christmas beetle is endemic only to Australia. Every winter, they emerge from the soil and form swarms to find food. A beetle swarm can strip in several whole eucalyptus trees bare in a feeding frenzy. Lara grimaced. Come on, don't you think it's beautiful? Maggie looked at the beetle like it was a newborn baby. It reminds me of Chrissy, when we could hear the beetles buzzing loudly at night before we would open our presents. They're notoriously clumsy. They fly, in fly around like wind-up toys, crashing into walls, windows, trees, and even people. I can't tell you how many times I've found one of these stowed away in my clothing drawers as a kid. Sadly, they've come to be viewed as pests, given their voracious appetites for eucalyptus trees. So how did the beetle get all the way here, then? Lara asked, her foot tapping the floor. You mean from Oz? It must be part of someone's live collection, though I wonder how they got it through customs. Maggie furrowed her brow and studied the beetle carefully. What's the contraption on its back? Lara asked. It looks like some sort of micro-sized surveillance camera to me. Does it do more? Oh, sweet! I've heard about the research they're doing on these, Maggie said, her smile on full throttle as she continued to examine the beetle. But I've never seen one in person. This tiny backpack on its thorax contains microelectronics designed to control the beetle's flight. See there? Maggie pointed to a small cube. That's the tiny lithium battery powering the electrodes that are implanted into its wing-folding muscles. How does it work? Lara asked. If you look closely, you can see the electrodes are connected to a microprocessor, which has a built-in wireless receiver. The human operator sends radio signals via a handheld transmitter. The electrical pulse trigger, pulses trigger the beetle to take off, cease flight, and swerve to the right, left, upwards, or downwards, providing full control over the beetle's flight. The camera records everything and transmits the feed wirelessly to the operator. Lara frowned. What do you think these beetles would be used for? Maggie wrinkled her forehead. DARPA funded this research for years, so it must be defense-related. Surveillance? Search and rescue missions? But why not just use micro-drones or micro-bots? Maggie shrugged her shoulders. I reckon a live beetle would draw less attention than a small robot. Plus, a beetle this size can carry an impressive amount of weight on its back and doesn't re require a large energy source. Perhaps it's a payload issue. And why not take advantage of the beetle's natural ability, abilities by blending insect and machine, creating the ultimate bionic bug? This is absolutely incredible, Lara. Nightmare cyborg is more like it. Now that's interesting, Maggie said. What? Lara asked. I'm not sure. Let me have a closer look. Maggie walked over to the counter, placed the beetle on a glass slide, and situated it under a microscope. Huh. I don't think I've ever seen this before. She reached for a nearby laptop and opened an insect identification app. 
She typed in Christmas beetle and compared the pictures to the beetle on the slide. What is it? Laura craned her neck around Maggie's shoulder to try to get a better look. Well, the mouth part of this beetle appears to have been slightly modified. Why would someone modify the mouth of a beetle? Laura asked. Maggie kept her eyes glued to the microscope, possibly to give it the capability to bite. Unlike many other insects, most beetles are plant feeders and unable to bite humans or animals or feed on blood. Lara cringed. Blood-feeding insects are quite common nowadays. Entomologists believe they've been around for about 200 million years. Flies evolved first, followed by our favorite, the mosquito. But for an insect to feed on the blood of humans or animals, they need a specialized mouth part. Are you saying this beetle could have bitten me? Lara asked, shivering as if a chill went through her. Possibly. If so, that means the beetle may also be able to transmit disease through its saliva. But most beetles aren't able to carry human pathogens. I'd have to take a closer look and run some gene sequencing. Do you mind if I keep this beetle for now? By all means, keep it. Could you have one of your techs download the camera footage and send it to me? I want to see what the beetle was looking at. Sure thing. Don't worry, I'll get to the bottom of this, Maggie continued to stare into her microscope. Lara Kingsley? A gruff voice called from a few feet away. Lara turned to find two Maryland police officers walking in her direction, followed by a familiar man in plain clothes. Crap. Detective Mario Sanchez of the D.C. Metropolitan Police had locked her up in a cell the last time she interfered in a police investigation. Detective, Lara acknowledged. Sanchez, as he approached, stopping in front of her with crossed arms. His shorter stature had never interfered with his intimidation techniques. The certainty in his eye, the way that he set his jaw, even the way he chose to stand with his feet planted squarely shoulder-width apart, it all made her cringe. This was not going to go well for her. "'Miss Kingsley, we meet again,' he pasted on a smile and then wiped it away with a skull. You need to come down to the station with me and answer a few questions. Now. Maggie's eyes grew wide as she stared at Lara. Aren't you out of your jurisdiction, detective? Lara asked. Not at all. These fine officers are here to make sure everything is on the up and up. We work closely with other police departments to prevent suspects from crossing state lines to evade detection and capture. The, detection, the detective motioned for her to follow. Let's go for a walk. Do I have a choice? Lara asked. Not really, Detective Sanchez says. said. I can use handcuffs like I did last time. Is everything all right, Lara? Maggie asked, giving the detective a once-over. Yeah, no problem. I'll call you later, okay? Lara squeezed Maggie's shoulder and nodded. Maggie breathed out, shrugged, and now that everything seemed to be fine, proceeded to ogle the handsome detective. Lara rolled her eyes. Sanchez was nice to look at but he could be a real jerk when he wanted, which was most of the time. All right, let's go, Lara said. After you, the detective motioned for her to go first. Holding her head down to hide her face, Lara followed the officers toward the exit through the maze of graduate students and equipment. All eyes were on her, some staring outright, while most stole glances sideways. The detective walked behind her, as if to prevent a last-minute escape. One last thing, Detective Sanchez said. Lara stopped and looked over her shoulder. What? Gun and phone, please. She closed her eyes, shaking her head, and handed them over. How did you find me? Lara muttered under her breath. Sanchez gave her a triumphant look. Your assistant, Vic Abhe. 
Lara wanted to punch something but kept her cool. I'll have a few words with Vic when I get back to the office. He unloaded and placed her gun and phone in an evidence bag. You know these things work better when you charge them, he snickered, shaking the phone at her before dropping it in the bag. Crap, that's what I forgot. Okay, let's go behind the scenes. So in scene six, Lara and Maggie examine the bionic bug. As an Australian, Maggie recognizes the species immediately. It's the Australian Christmas beetle. Um, so I chose this species for personal reason. Um, I don't like looking at pictures of beetles. <laughs> In my research for the book, I started to have some dreams, <laughs> nightmares actually, about some of the scariest looking species. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I am actually afraid of bugs. So this wasn't very helpful. So I stumbled across the Christmas beetle and was immediately entranced by its beauty. And I decided that if I was going to have to suffer through writing a story about beetles, then I should at least be fascinated with the type that I choose. Um, so I found uh, out about the Christmas beetle. And since Maggie's Australian, it kind of makes sense for the story itself. Um, it's found only in Australia. Uh, there are about 36 different species that belong to the scarab family. And it's known for its very its stunning exoskeletons, so the vibrant hues, the metallic, the gold, the green, the red, and the brown. In Australia, these beetles occupy woodland areas in the trees um, and rich soil. Um, their lifespan is one to two years, but their adult lifespan is only for a few weeks. So once they come out of the soil, they don't uh, last very long. They emerge from the soil during the Christmas season. And at that time, swarms of these beetles can be found in eucalyptic trees, and um, they have been identified as a pest because of their ability to basically consume these trees. Another reason I chose the Christmas beetle is that I discovered that most beetles are harmless and not capable of biting people in the first place. So if I was going to pick out a bug that was really scary, um, the beetle is not the right um, bug. So um, this implied that I was going to have to find a way for the beetle to carry a deadly disease. And so I talked to my scientist friend and asked her if it would be possible to genetically modify a beetle to bite humans and carry disease. She said, yes, CRISPR could enable such modifications in the future, assuming, of course, we understand what sequences um, code for different types of mouthpieces and carrying different diseases. So CRISPR, um, I might have mentioned this before, this is an acronym, a scientific acronym, I'll say it, Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeat. It refers to a gene editing technique that emerged in 2012 that allows researchers to quickly and cheaply change the DNA of nearly any organism. And so in this scene, under a microscope, Maggie notices that the mouthpiece of the beetle has been altered. Later in the story, we'll find out more about how and why. So that's all I have for this week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.